Welcome to the FAIR Podcast. The Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research is a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing well-documented answers to criticisms of LDS doctrine, belief, and practice. To learn more about FAIR or to make donations, visit fairlds.org. I'm Blair Hodges, host of the FAIR Podcast. This episode features Professor Terrell Givens from the University of Virginia. We'll discuss his work on the Book of Mormon, Mormonism and culture, religious searching and certainty, and other topics. Questions or comments about this episode can be sent to podcast at fairlds.org or join the conversation at fairblog.org. I'm joined by Terrell Givens. He's a professor of literature and religion and holds the James Bostwick Chair of English at the University of Richmond. He's a prolific Mormon author. Some of his books include Viper on the Hearth, Mormon's Myths, and the Construction of Heresy, By the Hand of Mormon, the American Scripture that Launched a New World Religion, and People of Paradox, a History of Mormon Culture. His newest book from the Oxford Very Short Introduction series is on the Book of Mormon. Thanks for joining us today, Terrell. Good to be here, Blair. First, I want to I want you to talk a little bit about your background in, in Mormon studies, how you became interested in Mormon studies. I did uh, an, an undergraduate degree in comparative literature at Brigham Young University, which I think gave me uh, good experience in reading texts and in looking at broad cultural contexts for historical and intellectual developments in Western history. I then went to Cornell and studied intellectual history with Dominique LaCopra and Jonathan Culler. And after finishing my coursework there, decided that I missed comparative literature. So I went back to Chapel Hill and finished my doctoral degree in comparative literature there. And fully intended to pursue a career in 19th century British literature until my father, who happened to be a collector of Mormon memorabilia, began passing on anti-Mormon literature to me that he had been collecting from the 19th century. He found it quite interesting and thought that maybe I should take a look at it as a literary scholar and do something with it. And so rather reluctantly at first I agreed to, to do that. And uh, as, I, as I did, a whole world kind of opened up to me as I realized that nobody had or very few people had actually looked at the phenomenon of anti-Mormonism through the lens of literary studies rather than historical studies. And the result of those early investigations was my first book, Viper on the Hearth. And uh, after doing that book, I thought that I was going to go back to, uh, to British Romanticism. When it occurred to me one day, soon thereafter, that, um, that the Book of Mormon was the most widely distributed book ever produced by an American, and there had never been written a single book about the Book of Mormon, published by a non-religious press. And when I raised that observation with Oxford, they invited me to to work on a volume, which I then did, and that was the book you mentioned, uh, By the Hand of Mormon. Now I, I seem to be firmly stuck in this field, for better or for worse. You mentioned you looked at anti-Mormon literature from a literary perspective rather than a historical one. What kind of questions would you bring to bear on that that would differ from a more historical look? Well, I think that we've become more sensitized in recent years to the extent to which public perceptions of religious groups are largely mediated through culture through media like popular fiction in particular. And so it turns out that popular fiction did really important and really interesting cultural work in the 19th century. And so far as it used the resources of literature and of literary representation and caricature to alleviate what I call the anxiety of seduction that seemed to be so widespread in the 19th century, Mormonism presented a unique challenge 
in American religious history insofar as it was widely perceived as a threat, as something that was alien and hostile to American institutions and values. But it produced or it engendered a unique phobia because Mormons couldn't readily be recognized as most foreign entities or other ethnic groups could be. And so it turns out that one of the functions that literature accomplished was to reconstitute Mormonism into a distinct kind of ethnic category. And the success with which that was brought off is evident in such facts as uh, if you go to a reference library and look up Mormons in the Harvard Encyclopedia of Ethnic Groups, you'll find Mormons listed as an ethnic group. So I think in large part that's a result of a very effective campaign waged in the latter half of the 19th century to create Mormons, as I said, as a distinct ethnic group. When was that um, Harvard Encyclopedia done? Well, that's the current edition. So that's a reverberation from, from back then, even if you see that as kind of a carryover from the... Absolutely. And, um, you know, sociologists and historians disagree on exactly what nomenclature is appropriate for Mormons, but they all agree that something about Mormonism transcends mere denominational status. I mean, it's been called an ethnic group, uh, a subculture, a global tribe, but it's clear that there is something, um, as I said, that is that renders them a distinct community in ways that other religious groups really aren't constituted. So then you moved on to the Book of Mormon, and I mentioned the Oxford book, the very short introduction. I wanted to talk about a couple of things in there. You decided to focus more on the content of the Book of Mormon there, as opposed to what you'd done in By the Hand of Mormon, which was kind of look at the cultural history of how the Book of Mormon's been seen and used. What led to that decision? Well, the first problem that presents itself in writing about the Book of Mormon is how do you avoid the Book of Mormon wars? How do you avoid the fact that the Book of Mormon has always functioned for Mormons and for non-Mormons? as a sign or barometer of the truthfulness of Joseph Smith's message rather than as a carrier of meaning in and of itself. And I wanted to avoid that. So the easiest way to do that in the first study was to just do a reception history where I studied the impact of the way in which the, the Book of Mormon was used, viewed, interpreted, constituted by detractors and proponents. And that allowed me f to some extent to avoid the question, is it true or what is the spiritual value of this record? In the second project, which I did for Oxford, I, I, I thought that it was time to turn attention to the Book of Mormon itself. So one way that I did that was I, I tried to avoid even mentioning Joseph Smith until as late in the book as was possible. Um, because as soon as you, you mention Joseph Smith, he assumes center stage and the Book of Mormon recedes into the background. And so I tried to do just a kind of formal overview of the Book of Mormon. What are its themes? What are its main characters? How does it constitute itself? What is the narrative strategy that's employed? And uh, I, I hope I carried that off. And that sort of approach seems to be a little different from what you saw early Mormons doing with the Book of Mormon. In, in By the Hand of Mormon, like you mentioned, you see it as sort of, they, they viewed it as a sign. Prophecy is back. Joseph Smith is a prophet. Would you qualify that at all now that you've had some distance from that book? Did you find more that sustained that thesis or more to qualify it? Well, the, the more work that I've done into early church history and theology, especially looking at the work of Parley Pratt, Parley Pratt seems to be an exception to the general rule and that he found the Book of Mormon worth study and he preached sermons from it. He found that it was doctrinally rich and, and substantive, but I think he was by far the exception. The more you study early Mormon proselytizing, for example, the more one becomes convinced that, that the missionaries were primarily using the Book of Mormon as a sign that Joseph was a prophet. They testified much more about the, the testimony of the witnesses, read from the testimony of the witnesses more than they would read for doctrinal um, 
import. Do you think that played into the the cultural expectations? Did they want that kind of more proof? Did they want that more concrete connection with angels here or men who beheld the plates? Well, absolutely. In the first generation of Mormonism, of course, Western religious culture in general was immersed in a millennialist worldview. And so the Book of Mormon was Exhibit A in the list of evidence that God had reopened the heavens, that miracles were again happening, God was interacting with, with, with humans. And so the Book of Mormon was a kind of sacred icon, uh, a sacred relic that was a physical or tangible embodiment of God's interaction with, with the world. You mentioned Book of Mormon Wars, and from that I gather it's the idea of whether or not it's a true history or whether Joseph Smith wrote it or someone else. Uh, there's an interesting part in your introduction to the Book of Mormon here where you're talking about the Anthem experience where Martin Harris takes the characters to Professor and tries to get him to verify these things. And uh, later on, Anthem said, hey, that, you know, I didn't say that this was accurate or anything like that. And Martin Harris walked out of there convinced that Joseph was getting it right. So you write that uh, in a pattern that perfectly epitomizes Book of Mormon Wars to the present day, detractors and believers alike found in the episode clear collaboration of their respective positions. And near the end of the introduction, you talk about how you, you kind of expect that to continue. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it seems that the the race, if you will, to win the Book of Mormon Wars by conclusively demonstrating either that it is a 19th century production or that it is an early American artifact has, has been going on neck and neck from 1830 to the present. I mean, Alexander Campbell lobbies the first salvo when he claims to have found in the Book of Mormon evidence of all kinds of 19th century borrowings, right? He says it's filled with the preoccupations of the 19th century religious controversies. And then a few years later, Joseph Smith is excited because John Lloyd Stevens has come back from Central America and discovered ruins that seem to corroborate the Book of Mormon's story of ancient, highly sophisticated civilizations. And it's gone back and forth like that ever since. Um, Archaeologists find stone altars in Yemen with an inscription of the name Nahum, which seems to corroborate Book of Mormon historicity, just as other anti-Mormon archaeologists conclude that there isn't a single whisper of evidence anywhere in the record in the Western Hemisphere to corroborate the Book of Mormon. Mormons invoke word prints or Hebraisms, and the, the the opposition continues to uncover more and more examples of 19th century cultural similarities that are rather suspicious. And uh, it's my personal belief that it will never be definitively resolved one way or the other. One thing that Alexander Campbell also brought up was the profound Christology of, of these supposedly pre-New Testament Israelites. And you talk a little bit about that uh, in terms of Prisca Theologia. What do you mean by Prisca Theologia? How does that come to bear on the early Christology of the Book of Mormon? Well, this is another example of where the exact same evidence that supports Mormons in their faithful account strengthens the, the arguments of the opposition, depending on how you construe the evidence. In other words, Joseph Smith created a vision of the gospel as something that goes all the way back to Adam. And if that's true, then one would expect to find elements of the true gospel in all ancient traditions that precede by centuries the Christian era. And so when you find in a text like the Book of Mormon evidence that 600 years before Christ people were using his name and teaching his gospel, Mormons would say, well, see, that's just one more example of, the, of how ancient the gospel is. Whereas a non-Mormon would say, see, that's proof positive of the fact that we have all kinds of anachronisms here that 
undermine the historicity of the Book of Mormon. Okay, and in your study of the Book of Mormon, for this very short introduction, you close the book by talking about the impact that the Book of Mormon will continue to have on, on Mormons, and, and also it seems a hope that the more non-Mormons will, will gain interest in the book. But you quote a fellow named Sidney Alstrom, I believe he was a religious studies scholar, and in 1972 he said, a few isolated individuals can still read the Book of Mormon as a religious testimony, but not even loyal Mormons can be nourished by it as they were a century ago. So he saw it as becoming more and more irrelevant. And what, What's your take on that? Well, I think what he said was demonstrably true up until the era of Ezra Taft Benson. And I think that he affected a, a successful paradigm shift in centering the Book of Mormon in the Mormon consciousness. And I think to this day, it's far more common for members of the church to spend time studying the Book of Mormon on a daily or weekly basis than it is for them to be reading the Bible. And I think they do that in and find exactly that spiritual nourishment which he thought was absent. In the introduction, you decided to focus on some of the themes of the Book of Mormon and bring a literary analysis to bear on it. And some of the things you point out are, are really interesting. I, I was interested in your a very simple comparison that you made between the opening of the Book of Mormon and the opening of the Book of, of Genesis. So if you opened up the Bible and began to read versus if you opened the Book of Mormon and began to read, you're getting a different account. Can you talk about some of the differences there? Well, the Bible is conspicuous as an example of cosmic history. It purports to give us the the history of all things, of the created universe. And it begins with this kind of portentous in the beginning. And we have God and we have chaos and we have order coming into the universe. And then as the focus narrows, it only narrows very slightly insofar as we have told to us the history and destiny of great nations and great peoples. The Book of Mormon begins with the exact opposite kind of emphasis, where we're given a specific time, a specific place. We're in Jerusalem. It's 600 B.C. It's the age of Jeremiah. There's a man named Lehi. He's not the leader of a nation or a great people. He's an individual. Very soon, his life becomes preoccupied with very particular family problems and family divisions and issues. And so what we have is a radical focusing of the Book of Mormon, and by analogy, a focusing of God's interest on individual destinies rather than cosmic or even national histories. And that seems to be one of the great messages and one of the great emphases of the Book of Mormon is the extent to which God is a God of individuals and, and the extent to which God's revelations are dialogic revelations that are targeted toward individual concerns rather than matters of great or national import alone. It seems to me that you believe Mormons take that view and apply it in their own lives. Um, in the Book of Mormon, there still are some pretty striking instances. Uh, for example, Alma the Younger, an angel appears to him, or Nephi hears the voice of the Lord and then has a great vision. So we have these dialogic revelations, but some of them in the Book of Mormon, most of them even kind of seem very grandiose compared to what a, an average Mormon might expect. How do you think a Mormon can reconcile that? Well, I think there's no question that um, just as the gifts faded in the primitive church, so there seems to be a diminishment of the spiritual manifestations and gifts in the restored church. To some extent, that's a function of any church that becomes institutionalized, normatized over time. Um, and to some extent, that was a deliberate strategy on the part of church leaders who wanted to de-emphasize spiritual gifts. I think it's a, it's, it's a natural process. I think Mormons have accommodated themselves in some ways by 
changing the, the lexicon of, of scriptural resources that they use in order to to identify or define the nature of spiritual experience. For example, instead of focusing on those Book of Mormon episodes where we have angelic visitations or interaction with, with angelic beings, we emphasize those verses that originally were given to Joseph Smith to describe the translation process that have to do with, with feelings and impressions and stupors of thought. And that has become the template, if you will, for revelation. So that's one way that Mormons have accommodated themselves to a less charismatic church. Another thing that's interesting about a literary analysis of the Book of Mormon is what you call the Chinese box structure of the Book of Mormon. What did you mean by that? Well, Grant Hardy has done the most impressive work in this regard in showing that the Book of Mormon is a literary work of phenomenal complexity. And just keeping track of the, the genealogy, if you will, of any particular passage or, or, or part of the text can be a very difficult enterprise. We have brass plates, which become incorporated into Nephi's record, which become incorporated into the teachings of Abinadi, which become incorporated into the, the gospel that Alma is teaching, which becomes part of what is read before the people of Zarahemla. And so that's what I mean by this this, this sense of, of, of Chinese boxes, that we have scripture that is incorporated and assimilated into ever new and ever burgeoning contexts in a way that doesn't just reveal a literary complexity, but I think it also says something about the nature of Scripture, that Scripture is, is infinitely recontextualizable, if you will. And, is that what Nephi means by likening? Is that ex exactly, exactly. I mean, what we see in the Book of Mormon is, is Nephi is, is the Midrashist par excellence, right? He's, he can take any Scripture and adapt it to his particular time and circumstance. He encourages his readers to do the same, and then I think the Book of Mormon becomes an, an object lesson in precisely how to do that throughout a period of a thousand years. And while Nephi is doing that, it, it seems, at least the translation doesn't make him seem like the most poetic of writers. Uh, you mentioned that searching for literary wonders in the Book of Mormon is a bit like seeking lyrical inspiration in the books of Chronicles or Judges from the Bible. What are some of the, of the lyrical inspirational bits that you have found there in the Book of Mormon that have impressed you? Well, I think that the, the, the poignance and the beauty of the Book of Mormon isn't to be found from any particular passages, though there are some of those scattered throughout. I think that the great dramatic intensity of the Book of Mormon comes from the contrast, the, 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 the narrative structure that juxtaposes Nephi, who represents right, the, the dawn of Nephite history, an era full of hope and promise and great expectations. And, and, and this, I mean, the entire destiny of his people lies open before him with full of promise and potential. And that's contrasted with, with the almost unbearably tragic story of Mormon, who personally witnesses the utter destruction of his people who were once so fair and delightsome. In, in his words, so I think it's a it's a it's a great story of, of failed hopes of, of ruptured families. It's it's rather like Genesis begins also in family strife, family conflict, and ends with this this heart wrenching scene right in Pharaoh's house where the, the the children of Israel are all reconciled to one another, and it ends in this kind of hymn of unity and these beautiful blessings given to the posterity of Isaac. Whereas the Book of Mormon uh, ends in the opposite direction. It ends in apocalypse and destruction. And the only glimmer of hope that transcends this tragic tale is the set of gold plates. 
so we have that in, in a pretty sizable book, and it takes a little time to, I think, dig that out. Why do you think God would use a book like that to get such a message across? Why this book? Well, that's a good point. Uh, Grant Hardy has made the observation that if the Book of Mormon was just to serve as a sign of God's dealings, he could have used a pamphlet. <laughs> why Why almost a 600-page work? Well, I, I think that if one looks back at the history of the Book of Mormon, one sees that there's, a, been a, there's been a very slow and very gradual growing appreciation for the value of its content. I've always been struck, for example, by the fact that, that the most radical innovation of the Book of Mormon in terms of a doctrine is the teaching of the fortunate fall. And yet, Joseph Smith never commented on that doctrine, as far as I can tell, nor did the Pratts. It's a doctrine that is repeated in the Pearl of Great Price, and yet it, it lay there buried and unnoticed and unappreciated. And so one wonders, well, how many other teachings or doctrines in the Book of Mormon have we not really plumbed the depths of because we haven't um, turned our attention to it with enough devotion and, and uh, intellectual rigor? Yeah, that's one of the doctrines you mentioned in, in the very short introduction. Is one of the strikingly novel doctrines, as you call it, this, this idea of the fortunate fall. What's the most striking difference about that? Then talk a little bit more about the fortunate fall and, and how that comes to bear on the entire Christian well, cosmology. Well, it, it's, it's almost as if that is the missing piece to render Joseph Smith's theology complete. And, and we have completed it more or less by insinuation and inference. But Joseph, right, as early as 1832-33, he's already developing his ideas about the pre-existence, the pre-mortal existence of the human spirit. Given the fact that Joseph posits this anthropology that places our human, the, the human soul in a pre-mortal realm, in the presence of God, with the potential for theosis to become actually like God, it, it becomes immediately evident that this temporal existence has to be a phase of ascent rather than a time of decline or fall. And that's precisely what is taught in Alma. And yet Joseph somewhat remarkably, used the language, the Protestant language of, of the fall throughout most of his ministry. He would refer to Adam's fall, to Adam's transgression, to, to, to the fall of man as something that had been remedied by the atonement of Christ. But the Book of Mormon, I think, gives a more accurate and plausible, sensible view, which is that there wasn't any, any fall. There was a transgression on the part of Adam, but the, the, uh, the ascent, if you will, of the human spirits into the temporal plane was part of the process, eventually leading to theosis, not a setback. And this is a question that bears more on Mormon theology, and that's sort of the project that you're working on right now is, uh, is a look at Mormon theology. Tell me a little bit about that project. Uh, I, I do have a contract from Oxford University Press to write a two-volume history of Mormon theology. And I'm attempting to do this by positing a few theses. First of all, I want to make the point that, as I said, as early as the 18, early 1830s, Joseph already had fairly well uh, limbed out in his own mind the entire plan of salvation. What he spent the rest of his life doing was filling in details and connecting dots. But I don't believe, as other historians have tended to emphasize, that, that there were dramatic shifts or changes or evolutions in his religious thinking. I don't think that... Uh, You're talking the periodization. Exactly. It's become almost commonplace to say, well, there was a Kirtland theology, and then there's a Nauvoo theology, and then there's Joseph the mystic. Well, certainly there's growth and development, 
but as I said, if you have the essential anthropology limbed out in 1832, pre-existence, and we come here, the temple exists as that place where pre-existent potential is actualized in terms of eternal durable relationships that lead to theosis, uh, that's the essential theology of Mormonism. And I, I think virtually every other doctrine and principle can be fit into that scheme in one way or another. And so that, I think, in part is what I am attempting to do, not in order to systematize, but rather to show the coherence of Joseph's uh, thinking and to show the process by which that historically unfolded uh, in the early church and beyond. And there haven't been very many works specifically dedicated to the idea of Mormon theology. We have uh, Sterling McMurrin uh, did some work on that. Uh, more recently, Blake Osler has done some of his own kind of creative Mormon theology uh, in some books from Coford. Why do you think Mormons haven't spent more time looking at, at the idea of theology in Mormon? Well, I think, I think the view that has long prevailed and goes all the way back to Brigham Young, one can find in Brigham Young and his successors pretty vitriolic language uh, referring to the enterprise of theology. Hugh Nibley very famously said, theology is what happens when revelation ceases. And so I think Mormons have been very skittish of the word for that reason, and also because theology suggests to most Mormon minds a kind of stasis. And nobody wants to ossify a tradition whose underpinnings are in continual revelation. So the difficulty is, how do you write a historical theology without becoming normative? And that's one of the challenges that, of course, I'll face. Is I don't want to presume for a moment to be declaring or, or arbitrating uh, when, when there are theological differences or disputes among various, various leaders who have spoken on, on, on theological issues. But if, we, but if we consider theology as simply uh, a kind of rigorous reflection upon our faith, then it's obvious that we can't, or at least we shouldn't, escape the burden of our own theology. In doing that, looking at historic thought, as you mentioned, you're going to find some contradictions. You're going to find some church leaders saying one thing and others saying another on, on various topics. There's a sociologist in the church, uh, Armand Moss, and he has a really interesting quote that you use in your book, People of Paradox. Uh, Moss says, Abandon certainty, all ye who enter herein. Never again will you enjoy the immunity to doubt and ambiguity that went with your previous life. But then the ability to live with perpetual ambiguity is also a trait that distinguishes adults from adolescents. And he's talking about Mormon, the Mormon tension between certainty and, and searching. How is that borne out in, in your research? Well, I think that this is one of the great cultural challenges that Mormons face. Mormons can be distinguished from other faith traditions in many ways, but one of the most conspicuous to non-members and to visitors to our chapels is the rhetoric of certainty that one finds, for example, in a Mormon testimony meeting. It's an unusual kind of discourse to stand up and say not what you believe, not what your faith is, but what you know. And I think this creates an almost unbearable pressure on that segment of the Mormon populace who don't feel that they can testify with certitude. It's, I think it's a little sad that Mormons tend to remember the, the spiritual gift that is given in the Doctrine and Covenants that to some is given to know, but they don't read the rest of the verse that says, and to some is given to believe on their words. And so I think there needs to be more room in, in Mormon culture for not just the certitude, but the ever-searching heart as well. How could that room be created? Well, I think in part it could be created by a more accurate reflection on the life and ministry of Joseph Smith. 
uh, Jill Durr once said to me that she thought the early church was a mixture of revelation, imagination, and negotiation. And I think that's a great way to describe the prophetic enterprise as Joseph Smith understood it. Joseph Smith was continually reaching out and striving and speculating uh, at the same time that he was having theophanies and heavenly visitations. But he certainly understood that, that uncovering the fullness of the gospel was uh, a, a proactive endeavor and not a passive one. Uh, I've always thought one of the greatest lessons of his life was that after he had shown the ability to translate plates from an unknown language like Reformed Egyptian, he hired a Jewish schoolmaster to teach him Hebrew, which is a pretty good indication that he felt that we have to add the hard work of perspiration to the gift of inspiration. And as far as abandoning certainty for you, what are what are some of the things you've run into in your look at Mormon theology that have left you puzzled? Well, I don't think anybody's ever going to crack the mystery of, of polygamy and of, of the various and, to our minds, strange phases and versions that it went through. I don't know that I have achieved any great insight into those kinds of problems, although I think that one can come closer to understanding what might have been going through Joseph's mind in terms of his quest for for kinship, his, his, his uh, priority of of dynastic relations and family associations and friendship in his ministry. Um, but that's one mystery that will always remain. There have been some recent developments in Mormon studies. Um, the Joseph Smith Papers Project, um, there have been some university chairs around the country, some exciting developments. Talk about some of the prospects that you see. Well, you know, people talk about the 19, late 1960s, 70s as the age of Camelot under Leonard Arrington and I'm sure they were, but if that's the case, then this may be a, a second Camelot, I, I hope, they're about to enter into now. I think that the Mountain Meadows Massacre book, I think the, the generally positive reception of Rough Stone Rolling, which was a, a fairly honest and unairbrushed account of Joseph Smith, the rigor and openness with which the Joseph Smith papers are being produced, presented to the public. All of these are, are, are terrific signs of a general a kind of maturity on the part of, I think, Mormon culture to address our past more openly and honestly. And I look and hope we see more of the same kind of developments. Mormonism has always had an interest in history, I think all the way going back, but it's been a particular type of history and, and more of an advocacy history. Do you see that continuing? Um, and, and what are some of the uses be behind that type of a history compared to a more strictly academic history? Well, I think it's been, it's been pointed out before that Mormon history for the first hundred and more years was almost always written either by, by uh, vicious critics or overzealous defenders, and so there, it's been very hard to stake out a middle ground in Mormon historiography. But I think we're seeing the emergence of that now. I think to the extent that we have Mormon studies programs springing up and Mormon professorships springing up, I, I think that that has forced a kind of professionalization which avoids the extremes of both um, kind of unwarranted criticism on the one hand and, and overzealous apologetics on the other. What are some of the uh, benefits of that professionalization and maybe some of the drawbacks of it as well? Well, I think, you know, the, the, the church leaders have rightly seen themselves as, as watchmen on the tower. And I think that the, 
principal purpose of history in the church's past has been to strengthen and edify. What has changed in recent years is the accessibility of the full historical record. And so I think what we're coming to recognize is that if we only teach a sanitized view of church history, it's not about professional standards. I, I, for me, that's not the issue. The issue is that if members are going to develop strong and viable testimonies, faith that is predicated on truth, then they have to be given access to the full story of their faith. Otherwise, they will learn the truth from sources more hostile to the church, and then what they will experience is not enlightenment, but a feeling of betrayal. And so my concern is that we teach the history honestly and rigorously enough that we forestall and preclude any possibility of them ever feeling that they were betrayed by their own teachers and institutions. You mentioned Rough Stone Rolling from uh, Richard Bushman's The Author there, a biography of Joseph Smith. And that book tries to take a really honest, hard look at who Joseph Smith was and, and, and what he did. And in Bushman's very short introduction to Mormonism, he talks about uh, outsiders looking at Mormons and saying, nice people, strange beliefs. And that kind of comes back to Joseph, this man who said he spoke with angels and had a set of gold plates and, and these kind of wacky things that we believe. Where do you find yourself there? You're a, you're a guy who likes to think. Uh, you're a Well, <laughs> yeah, it was Charles Dickens, I think, in 1851, who said what the Mormons say is absurd. What they believe, what they do is mostly excellent. And Mormons have responded to that criticism by being complicit in what it implies. And here's what I mean by that. In the first several generations of Mormonism, from at least 1830 until about 1893, Mormons were portrayed either as frauds or philanderers. And Mormons were put on the defensive. And so the pamphlet wars largely became wars over things like the Solomon Spalding Manuscript or Joseph Smith's character. And then they became uh, attacks on and defenses of polygamy from 1853 until 1893. Finally, in 1893, what the church discovered was that if they tried to represent themselves as Christians, as they did at the World Parliament of Religions, they were shut down. But if they tried to represent themselves as great singers in the, in the form of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, then they became America's sweetheart. And the lesson that they learned from that was that if we are willing to be seen by the world as a cultural entity, then we can be accepted and loved. But nobody will take us seriously if we try to present ourselves in terms of a particular theology or belief system. And that seems to me one of the reasons you did, uh, through People of Paradox, was you were looking at how Mormons uh, uh, became more acceptable in American culture, and, and one of the ways they did that was, was through the arts, or, or th you know, we have the Osmonds, <laughs> for example. And, and you've mentioned that uh, if, if you put up some recognizable Mormons from, from the last hundred years, you're going to see people like Steve Young, um, you're going to see people like the Osmonds, you're not necessarily going to see a, uh, an Einstein or a, you know, a great American thinker. Do you see that changing in the future? Well, I don't I don't know that it will. There's a pattern in the past that we could follow that would signify a paradigm shift, and that's the, that's the pattern that Parley Pratt exemplified in 1838. 
he was the first one really who when confronted with a hostile press, in this case it was a series of articles written by the Methodist minister Leroy Sunderland, accusing the Mormons of believing in such outrageous doctrines as deification, Pratt's response was to say, you bet we do, and here's why. And so he took the offensive, and he threw red meat to the critics and said, you want to talk doctrine, let's talk doctrine, and I'll go to the wall defending these things that you consider absolutely blasphemous and outrageous. Our attitude since then has been to downplay Mormon particularism. And the whole strategy reminds me sometimes of people in the lifeboats trying to get back to the Titanic. What we see time and time again in the contemporary Protestant world especially is that people are fleeing the old forms of Protestantism looking for an alternative. What Mormonism offers is a radical, dramatic alternative to creedal Christianity. And it just seems odd to me that, that, that Mormons often run from rather than embrace that radical difference. There's a strange tension there, too, even within the church. For example, um, President Hinckley's interview, I, I believe it was with Larry King, where he, uh, uh, whoever the, the interviewer was brought up the idea that God was once a man, and, and President Hinckley sidestepped the question. But then uh, in, the, in the next priesthood manual that came out, uh, the Joseph Smith manual, we have a bunch of selections from the King Fala discourse. Um, so, so we have this, do you think that's more of a public versus private, or do you see Mormons taking a step away from the particularism, even in, within the church? Well, I think there's, there's divided sentiment in the church. I think there was, there's divided sentiment within individuals. I think there was divided sentiment within Joseph Smith's own mind. If you look at the Articles of Faith, it's a strange schizophrenic document, because he begins by saying, we're just like you. We believe in God, Christ, and the Holy Ghost. And then in the very next breath, he says, but we completely reject all of Christianity's teachings about inherited guilt and original sin. But we believe in the Bible. But we also believe in the Book of Mormon. <laughs> uh, but he doesn't talk about pre-existence. He doesn't talk about exaltation. So in part, it may be just a, a question of tactics. Uh, you know, when is it appropriate to, to, to lead out with a radical doctrine? When is the danger of alienation and estrangement so great that we have to soft pedal some of the, the more uh, iconoclastic teachings? So I don't presume to, to know. I just think that we should be aware of the fact that, as I said, Pratt and others have shown the possibility of a, of a more vigorous and robust approach. You mentioned Parley P. Pratt and, and the way that he engaged the pamphleteers. Uh, it seemed that he, he spent some uh, quite a bit of time writing and responding and also engaging in, in thought with, with other religionists uh, of his time. Have you finished uh, the book on Parley P. Pratt? Matt Groh and I have finished the biography of Parley Pratt. Uh, it's now circulating with some fellow scholars for their comment and criticisms. And when we work out our last revisions, we will be sending that to the press in the next few months. Did anything surprise you as you uh, looked at Parley Pratt? I, I assume that's the closest you'd looked at him. Yes, it was. I think I was surprised by a few things. One was I knew that he was important as an early theologian, but I hadn't begun to fathom the extent to which the Mormonism that we today believe and practice was given its essential form and shape by Parley Pratt it would be impossible to exaggerate the extent to which he gave uh, systematic order and form to Joseph Smith's theology. 
the the second i think surprise well it shouldn't be surprised any biographer really was the extent to which parley told a particular story about himself in his autobiography which is not always the same story that one that one can extract from all the available evidence um, he was trying to tell a particular story and, and was concerned to present himself in a particular way. And for the most part, his story has honesty and integrity. But there are some very important elements that he left out that make for a more fully rounded character and a more complex character. There's some f uh, fun stories from, from that autobiography. I remember reading as a missionary of, of his uh, escape from uh, from arrest where uh, he was chased by a dog. And and I've talked to you a little bit about that story. And, and you know I love that story, but then there's Give me a little bit more. There's, yeah, there's a little more to this story. He creates the impression in his autobiography that he was arrested for, for preaching the Book of Mormon. It was on his way to the Lamanite mission, and he was in Ohio with three others. And uh, he talks in his autobiography of being accosted by a constable in the middle of testifying of the Book of Mormon and hauled away to jail. And as we were working on this portion of the biography, it occurred to me that there were a few things that didn't quite add up. One was that there were four of them. Why was he the only one arrested? Uh, the other is he said he was arrested on a frivolous charge, but for a man who was so good about details, why didn't he tell us exactly what that charge was? And then third... Well, it was frivolous. It was frivolous, <laughs> yeah. And then third and finally, I thought, now wait a minute, he, he lived in this same town just a few years before. And so as we looked into the records, we found a newspaper account which indicated that he had been arrested for debt he had apparently fled a few years before, or at least left town, without resolving all of his financial obligations. And so they were waiting for him with a warrant when he returned. And um, I'm sure that in his mind, the arrest was aggravated and the hostility inflamed by the fact that he was now a Mormon missionary. Um, so I think he probably didn't see what he was doing as misrepresenting the truth. But it wasn't the whole picture. Yeah, and I think that takes me back to the uh, Moss quote of abandoned certainty. There's also a sense of needing to abandon some, uh, or at least change some of my previous uh, favorite little stories, and I think that's a good example of that. And I, and I think that's a good reason to read history a little bit closer. Another book that you've written that we haven't mentioned yet, uh, When Souls Had Wings, was published by Oxford, and it's uh, it's a historical look at the idea of pre-existence. Um, what got you interested in that? Well, that's, there's a long genealogy behind that book. I, I'd start by saying that one of the most interesting things about Joseph's view of, of restoration was that the first revelation he received in 1829 that mentioned the church referred to the establishment of the church. And that was published as section four of the Book of Commandments. When he recast that for section five of the Doctrine and Covenants, he changed the language in highly significant ways. He had the Lord referring to the coming forth out of the wilderness of the church. And he deliberately took that language from the book of Revelation. And what happens in that allegory that is given us by John is that the church is not taken from the earth, but it retreats into the wilderness where it is nourished. And this reading came to me from my wife, who I think with her Catholic background and sensibility, perceived that this is a very different paradigm of the restoration and apostasy, because what it suggests is that the truth was never completely gone from the earth, that the spirit has always nourished honest and hard people. President Kimball used to say, when God doesn't have prophets, he speaks to the poets. And so 
I began to think about this in connection with this doctrine of pre-existence, because as a scholar of Romanticism, I couldn't help but notice that almost every major figure of the early 19th century in Britain and Germany had some version of the pre-existence that seeped into their poetry. Wordsworth is only the most famous. So I decided to do a study um, inspired by what I thought to be Joseph Smith's model of how truth operates in the world, to see where else has this idea appeared. And I was just astonished to find that it has been, it's, it's appeared in religious texts going back to 2000 BC in Mesopotamia. Um, Platonic literature is of course full of the idea of pre-existence. Jewish tradition, early Christian tradition, the Apostolic Fathers, the Cambridge Platonists of the 17th century, Kabbalists and Esotericists, uh, Renaissance Humanists, 19th century German Idealists. It's everywhere. And so I, uh, I did a study in which I surveyed the scope of the idea, not to assess how plausible or believable is this idea, but to ask what questions does this view of of human existence answer? What, what is it responsive to that our hearts yearn for? And in asking this question, I thought that there was much that we as Latter-day Saints could learn about what kind of cultural or intellectual or religious work does the idea of pre-existence do that we haven't been aware of because we've only seen it through the narrow lens of our own religious tradition. Right. There seems to be a danger in, in looking at the past through, through one's own religious lens as, in terms of um, finding what you want to find in, in, oh, you know, Joseph got it right, that sort of an attitude. Now, your book your book uh, avoids that. H- how did you go about well, avoiding I think that? I avoid it because I sincerely hold that idea in contempt. I think that to the extent that we think that Mormonism is the only uh, source or repository of truth, we're being unfaithful to Joseph Smith's tradition, his teachings, and his example. Uh, I wanted to study the idea of pre-existence because I genuinely wanted to learn what else is there to be learned from 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 the power and potency of this idea. And uh, I, I think that we could do this with all Latter-day Saint doctrines. We could be asking the question, well, who else has taught or believed this? What might we learn from their particular representation of this idea or doctrine? Um, Joseph said right, that we need to embrace the truth wherever we find it and make it part of Mormonism. And uh, so that, that was a meager attempt to do just that. As we look through Mormon history and, and Mormon doctrine, once in a while people run into difficulties. Today I know people have struggled with the idea of plural marriage. Um, some people have wondered about blacks in the priesthood or some of these things that, that we run into that might cause us to pause and, and question a little bit. Do you have some advice for, for what you do or, or what people can do when they run into those more difficult areas? Well, if certainty is becomes a quest, then you spend all of your life chasing the loose threads of the gospel. And I think that that what is lacking in Mormon culture is a greater appreciation for the, the value of faith itself. And I don't mean that as a kind of glib cop-out, that, well, we just we just trust or we just believe, we can't make sense of things. But I mean that in some very deep-rooted existential way, the freedom to choose to believe is a kind of moral imperative. And if we were to ever reach a point in our lives where we felt the evidence for or against Christ's divinity, 
or the Book of Mormon or Joseph Smith's prophetic calling were overwhelming, then there would be a kind of intellectual compulsion involved and our faith would not be a matter of choice. And so in my personal life, at least, I have developed, I think, an ability to, to value and even to cherish the opportunities that come to me frequently to define myself and to affirm my values by choosing to embrace um, one set of alternatives over another when the evidence creates a condition of, of relative equilibrium where there are good grounds to believe and there are good grounds to disbelieve. And then the question is, what do you affirm by the choice you make? Uh, another subject that I wanted to bring up was where Mormonism fits in with, with some of the great with some of the great thinkers in, in that. When, you're, when you've done your study on the pre, pre-mortal thought in history, for example, you're dealing with some pretty big names. You're dealing with people who have who've struggled with some of the big questions. Um, do you ever feel uh, that Mormonism has a provinciality to it, or do you feel like Mormonism has much to say to that broader discussion? Well, you know, Gene England used to say that Mormonism suffers from a kind of provincial anti-provincialism, and I think that's a brilliant characterization of where we are all too often. I think that Mormons labor under a kind of inferiority complex because it's true that Joseph Smith can't hold his own with the great systematic philosophers of the Western intellectual tradition. Um, On the other hand, I think there's a lot of merit to what Sterling McMurrin once said after he had written the, the philosophical or the theological foundations of Mormonism. A colleague complained to him that he made Mormonism out to look so much more intellectually substantial than it really was. And he said, well, that's true, but that's because Mormons make it out to look so much less intellectually substantial than it really is. And I think that when you compare Joseph Smith's anthropology, human and divine anthropology, to the other great religious systems of the West or of the world, I think that he holds his own very well. I think that there is an organic consistency to Joseph's overall conception of human origins and human futures that uh, is intellectually sound and self-consistent. I think the other great virtue of Joseph Smith's thought is that it resonates in ways that, well, beginning in the early 19th century especially, people found, um, found to be true to their experience of what it meant to be human. I think that Joseph Smith um, gives a a view of human agency, of human freedom, and of human potential that is not just intellectually self-consistent, but that is um, intuitively appealing. Uh, So I I find that Joseph Smith actually fares quite well the more one delves into his writings and thought. As Mormonism becomes more of a global faith, it, it obviously faces some challenges when it's trying to appeal to different cultures or trying to get the message uh, in different areas of the world. And um, what are some of the uh, the ways you, you see the church as embracing more of a, a world perspective and, and maybe a little bit less of that provincialism? Well, there are two two questions here. It seems that are really intertwined. One is to what extent is has Mormonism really been shaped and become indistinguishable in some regards from an American cultural inheritance. But I think it's also an interesting question to ask to what extent has Mormonism become indistinguishable from a certain Protestant inheritance. 
I mean, we have many aspects of our religious culture that we think are tenets of the Mormon faith that actually are more just a kind of Protestant carryover. I'm thinking, for example, of the of the tendency to be much more literalist in our reading of scriptures than is typical of most uh, others, and that's something that we inherited, I think, from the a, a particular kind of, of of Protestant literalism that influenced Parley Pratt and many of his contemporaries. I think culturally we have a lot of baggage that um, I, I think for for instance of the Protestant work ethic as something that has infused Mormon thought. The fact that we have the beehive as a symbol means that we value activity to such an extent that the contemplative dimensions of life sometimes get pushed way too far to the side. I think our vocabulary reflects a kind of obsession with busyness that at times can be a little concerning. Uh, we talk about temple work and work for the dead, and, and Mormons aren't devout. Mormons are active or inactive. And I, I think that, um, that as a result, we tend to be deficient in the area of creating a great devotional tradition and a great devotional literature. Um, that can be so rich in other religious traditions and is lacking in our own. What are some examples of that? You know, as, a, as a person so interested in literature, what are some things from outside the LDS tradition that, that you've found to be a good devotional literature? You mean just in my own personal yeah. reading? Yeah. Well, I, I find the Cambridge Platonists to be um, an especially rich and wonderful and inspiring group of writers. Um, I'm thinking of people like Henry Moore and, and Thomas Traherne. These were a group of Cambridge clergymen who uh, were absolutely committed to the idea of human pre-existence and to what they called the idea of deification, but were extremely pious, devout, uh, just spiritually centered individuals. Uh, I think there are many fathers in the early church tradition. Um, Gregory of, of Nazianzus, who's one of my favorites, um, there are writers like William Law, who wrote A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, which I think is the greatest devotional work ever written. Um, the Thomas Kempis's um, Imitation of Christ. I mean, there are just a lot of these works that were staples of the Christian tradition for many centuries that Mormons, I think, tend to dismiss out of hand because they're part of the, of the great apostasy, so to speak. And I think it may have been against such an attitude that Moroni was warning future readers. He warned not only to beware lest you call that which is good to be evil, but also, or not just that which is evil to be good, but also that which is good to be to be evil. I think, I wish we had more of the generosity of spirit of a Joseph Smith, uh, where we were more open and receptive to great sources of truth and beauty where, wherever they come from. Do you see that coming out more recently? Is that there seems to be kind of an openness to uh, and, and a reaching out. And it seems to me it kind of began even more with President Hinckley, where he was he was, seemed to be very ecumenical. Well, there's certainly a, a, a much more of an ecumenical emphasis in recent years, which which I applaud. I haven't seen that extended to the area where, as individuals, we tend to think that other traditions have a lot to teach us. Um, and uh, so I, I, I think there's still room for. Or, uh, good developments in that regard. To that end, we, we look forward to uh, to seeing what you come up with for the theology volumes. Do you have a projection, a general guess as to when that will be ready? 
Well, I'm hoping that uh, the first volume should see print early in 2013. We'll look forward to it. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today. You bet.